Welcome in to Natchez Glen House Stories. This is by far one of the most challenging story conversations we're going to have. And there's some irony here that this week's guest doesn't know that I was going to reach out to him in the future to talk about just general economic issues and horticulture and floriculture. And I had it on my to-do list. And then suddenly, as we record this, we find ourselves in the middle of COVID-19 coronavirus global pandemic. So clearly our conversation is going to go there. Uh, joining me this week is Charlie Hall, a professor at Texas A&M, who is, I've been a longtime fan of his work in the green industry as both a knowledgeable plants person, but an economist too, which sometimes finding a, a hybrid of those two things is a challenge in the nursery industry. Let's get right to it, Charlie. I, I want to ask you a question that I think might help frame for people some of what we're seeing transpiring in real time. And part of that has been, I've got a lot of questions from people surprised, in particular on the floriculture, California grower side of it, how quickly some of the farms out there have already decided to essentially go out of business, not just even in a temporary shutdown capacity, but as a more permanent decision. Do you feel from the view and experience you have that uh-huh. the grower floriculture thing, it already was faced with a ton of issues over the last decade plus. And the shock maybe of some people seeing these growers go out of business in essentially like two weeks. Um, it's a combination of a lot of events over the last two decades. And then this one clearly, as we'll talk about it more specifically, but I just want to frame that for people. Uh, I think it is shocking to anyone to see just all of a sudden a business say, four days into an event like this, we're out of business. Do you think people understand how challenging it was for those growers even before this moment in time? Well, obviously, Steve, given the surprise at which they respond, they didn't fully understand. And so, as you so adequately put, this is not something that happened overnight. And the the entire structure of the floral industry has changed so dramatically over the last three decades you know, we, we've seen a lot of changes. you got uh, the advent of supermarket floral, and that became an alternate source for cut consumers to actually buy flowers rather than having to go to the local florist all the time. And then you had the advent of the online floral industry, the 1-800-Flowers and so forth. And so a lot of those changes, a lot of those structural changes, really forced um, a lot of the industry to rethink itself, to retool itself. And anytime you have a maturation, that is a maturing of an industry, you see a number of things start happening. A lot of merger and acquisition activity. You have fewer players in the ball game, And that means you have a lot of downward pressure on price. And then we as an industry... We have not necessarily been uh, talking about the benefits of flowers all that much in recent years. And so the, the elasticity of demand from a consumer standpoint was such that 
they haven't necessarily been willing to pay the prices for flowers that we need for everyone in the supply chain to make a healthy margin. So as the power shifts have occurred in the industry, and you've had more power at the retail level, those people that are consumer-facing and interact with the consumer, those companies upstream are basically um, at the at the whim of that final demand, right? So their demand is a derived demand, and the, so they're at the at the whim of the final demand by the end consumer, which means. This is very important. Now, with the downward pressure on prices that we've seen over the last few years, meaning flower prices have not kept up with inflation, at the same time, the inputs that growers use to grow these flowers have increased fairly dramatically. In fact, I calculate the index of prices paid by growers. It's It's a new report that I've generated over the last three years. And that index today is roughly 30% higher than it was right before the Great Recession. And that's just a decade ago. So you have basically what that means is that prices of inputs like labor, transportation, the, um, the fertilizers, everything goes into producing flowers has increased. And so if the input cost have increased by 30% on average for all of the inputs and prices have remained relatively stagnant, that's what we call in economic terms a cost-price squeeze. And so flower growers historically have been been producing high-quality flowers, some of the best flowers uh, in the entire world, and yet their margins have been declining over time. So then when you have a shock to the system, a black swan event, as we're calling this, then all of a sudden you see shakeout occur. Firms that were on the margin in terms of profitability, they throw up their hands and say, you know, we can't compete. Do you feel as an industry, and for anybody that listens to the podcast frequently, they know this is a subject I've brought up a lot. For whatever reason, the green industry has a lot of groups that have a lot of acronyms in them, Charlie. And we do a lot of (laughs) meetings and we get together and there's a lot of, hey, haven't seen you since last year. There's a lot of glad handing. But it doesn't always do a great job of facing like real challenges in a real way that some of what you're describing has been an ongoing building pressure but I haven't seen it talked about as candidly as maybe I do in some other industries. That's true. In fact, um, I've been working along with a PhD student of mine on a project uh, looking at the structural changes within the industry. And we actually call that the silo effect, that there are different sectors within the industries uh, the, the floral industry that act as different silos. And so you see the coordination among those silos at a very minimal level, just more transactional in nature rather than strategic in nature. And it takes an event like this 
to really grab everyone's attention and to start pulling on the same wagon at the same time. Now, there have been efforts uh, to, to adjust to structural changes by the wholesalers, by the uh, Society of American Florists, by PMA Floral, various entities, and we can go through the acronym alphabet, and, and they've made some sort of adjustment. However, everybody usually operates with the frame of mind of solving the issue for wholesale florist or solving the issue for uh, brick and mortar florist or solving the e-commerce. Nobody really looks at the great big picture in terms of what's really needed from an industry standpoint. When you look at the growth of South American flower production out of Colombia and Ecuador, do you feel also that a big part of this conversation has sort of turned a blind eye to that, right? That you had this huge growth capacity and increase that came out of there. I know there was even a moment on the horticulture side where there's been some fear of developing nations getting into like plant production. And that has happened to some degree, even with like tissue culture. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, we almost had an awkward space because some wholesalers, right, they weren't only trying to maybe source, source from California growers, they're also sourcing from South American suppliers at that same time. So the real narrative, um, I've said to people a lot of times, if you walk into a mass market grocery store today, there's a very maybe not today, Charlie, because we're in a global pandemic, but pre-global <laughs> pandemic, if you would have walked into a grocery store, a dozen roses out of South America would have had a retail price on them of $10. And that's probably all-time low in the last 30 years. But it just wasn't talked about in that kind of way and how South America's role in this has really put so much pressure on these domestic farms, in particular in California. Yeah, uh, but I'm hesitant to to lay a lot of the blame on international growers for several reasons. First of all, uh, if you look at some of the bouquet manufacturers in Miami, some of the importers, they themselves are the growers. They own farms in South America and they in Latin America, and they are shipping their own flowers. So when you when you say it's imported flowers, you got to really be careful about which ones are really international in nature versus which ones are simply um, uh, owned uh, or coming in from operations that are owned by American farms. So there's there's a little bit of muddy water there. But there's another thing that I'd like to point out is that that same price phenomena I've evidenced in other sectors of the green industry, for example, poinsettias. In 1965, a poinsettia, six-inch poinsettia, basically wholesaled for about 285. And if you ramp it up through time, that same poinsettia should be selling wholesale today for $17. And yet, we're not very much above the 285 mm. in in certain times of the year, particularly towards Black Friday and the specials that the the uh, home centers are selling $1.99 poinsettias, right? So we've, I want to use a, a term that's 
that's not necessarily apropos, but uh, we've bastardized the market because we've not focused on the the entire benefit that the consumer derives. Mm. We focused on these flowers are pretty. We focused on these, look at these poinsettias, they're gorgeous. Instead, we haven't talked about the mental health benefits, the, the benefits to ADD children, the benefits to senior citizens uh, undergoing dementia and Alzheimer's uh, influences. So we, we haven't talked about those things. And therefore, like I said earlier, we haven't even moved the needle in terms of the elasticity of demand for flowers. And if we if we were emphasizing more of that, we'd see a more inelasticity of demand developed so that when when we had hard times like this, you wouldn't see supermarkets uh, do away with their floral departments to make room for the quote unquote essential items mm-hmm. like toilet paper and cleaning cloths and all this. Instead, flowers would be deemed to be essential and necessities in people's lives, and therefore we would make room within the supply chain, even in times of economic downturn, and even during times like this, unforeseen black swan events. Why do you think the industry of plants, and and Mm -hmm. ironically, I've seen so many of the exact same things you're talking about. My background was more in horticulture and then it's only been in this last like 24, 28 months, I switched over to flower production, but yet there's so many parallels and similarities. The industry has seemed just focused on sales, never focused on brand and education building. And when you get that focused on sales only, like you're pointing out in these difficult times, it's just there's not the education factor. The consumer doesn't have awareness of your product. The consumer has only been buying your product because these values, like you've mentioned, are so historically cheap and then they haven't even kept up with inflation. So why do you think that is, Charlie? Why are, and this is a big question, I know, but why is it that is an industry overall, the green industry, big umbrella, seems like it had, it's had such a challenge educating and building brand for itself? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think it goes down to dollars that to educate and to market, uh, it it takes dollars. And I talked about the shrinking margins on the cut flower side, on the potted plant side, on the, the outdoor ornamental side, those margins have shrunk that, at what point in the supply chain is there money available in which to educate, to market? And, you know, we've talked several times about, well, maybe we should have a, a generic advertising program like Got Milk or Beef What's for Dinner. And there are those today that say that would be part of, the, of what our industry needs is we just need to throw money into uh, promoting our product. But I'm, and I'm a little reticent to just bite off on that as the panacea, because if you look at milk consumption today, it's no higher than what it was prior to the Got Milk campaign. Mm. And certainly red meat consumption is even lower than what it was prior to beef, what's for dinner. And, and so 
again, I don't see that those types of programs. Instead, I think if every single firm in the industry, Steve, were to take some of the benefits that I've collected on my website and it's on the SAF website and other websites, if we were to take that information as a grassroots level, if every firm was to to talk about this type of messaging, I think you would have a collective um, impact that's even larger, that's even louder, if you will, than a Got Milk campaign. How much do you, from your, because clearly this is what you do professionally and have done, Mm -hmm. how much did you see, and I think we can relate this back to flowers as well, because if you don't understand the perceived value as a consumer of a garden plant, then it's hard for you to project that on a cut flower as well. I think there's parallel there. That the big box store advent, their growth through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And I even saw this anecdotally in running a large-scale nursery. We had a much harder time because for what we grew is a more specialty crop for garden landscape. Mm-hmm. Developing a, cons- a retail consumer, a wholesale relationship B2B in the southern U.S. than we did in the northeast. And the southern U.S. is really where both Home Depot and Lowe's started. How much of a factor do you think they've had because they've run their business so much differently than independent garden centers have in keeping prices low? There's so much about volume and IGCs didn't really do a great job navigating them as a competitor. No, I I think that's uh, very insightful and there's no doubt that box stores have a different uh, selling strategy, different merchandising strategy than IGCs that are out there or uh, even florist, right? It's a, it's a totally different ball game, and it is a volume game. Now, some would say, well, that's been the demise of the industry. No, not necessarily because it's grown the size of the pie. And there are consumers that have walked into Depot, Lowe's, and Walmart that purchase those types of items, and then they want more. And when they when they want more, that's when they go to the ITC. They want more better service. They want better selection. They want better, I hesitate to say quality, because some of the same growers are supplying each one of those outlets. But, but they want something that the box store can't necessarily give them. And as you say, um, there haven't been many IGCs that have promoted what the more that they offer to those consumers. But uh, I don't want to be too harsh on the box stores because, like I said, there's there's slicing the pie that's of the existing size and there's making the pie bigger. And I think the role that they have played is they've made the pie bigger. And if we haven't gotten our, uh, we, meaning IGCs, if IGCs has, have not gotten their appropriate share of the pie to be bigger, that's on them. I had heard you do a talk a few years ago, and you said something that really stood with, stuck, stuck and stood with me, Charlie, was that we have this huge percentage of the market space that we don't have, that we don't have interest in gardening. And we really should look at that as potential 
but I don't know if people looked at it that way, right? I, I don't know if they've looked at it and gone, well, our consumer is an aging consumer. What that means is we have this huge group that we still haven't shown what we're about and what makes it so magical, incredible. Yeah. The thing that I've noticed is, and still to this day, as we talk during a global pandemic, there are large growers, large nursery growers, even in the floriculture world, large flower growers who don't even have a social media presence at all, Charlie. Don't have one at all. And Mm -hmm. I brought this fact up in the last, actually two weeks, sort of during the global pandemic. There are very small scale flower growers who I would really, if I'm being blunt, would say it's backyard flower grower who have more social media presence and influence than green industry businesses that do tens of of millions of dollars of sales annually. And I have found that a little just incredible that why have they been slow, reluctant to even go into something? As you mentioned, it's not a got milk thing. That could be a very in-house, just tell your story, tell your narrative. But yet we've seen small scale folks, private individuals who have very small businesses do a better job sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's several reasons for that, Steve. And that's Number one, I don't know if they recognize the power that they have there or they could have. And then number two, they don't understand the technology. And number three, they haven't had the margins in which to hire people to actually uh, do the social media campaigns. But it's they view it as a cost rather than an investment. So growers are very adept at making CapEx expenditures, and capital expenditures. Uh, we call it CapEx. And they look at, um, you know, a, a one-year, two-year payback in terms of making decision about whether to invest in that piece of equipment or that technology. And they should view information technology and, and social media and marketing as the same way, that it's an investment in their business instead of uh, a cost to their business. Now, there are some who do it very well, but they are the vast minority of the folks out there that are doing it. So now we're at a global pandemic, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> we've gone mm-hmm. over where we were. Now mm-hmm. we're here. Do you see, you, you already mentioned that, you know, when something like this happens, maybe this is the time where it's, a, a, you know, reality check might be an understatement for this particular circumstance. Um, do Is it an opportunity though? Is it a moment where there's a timeout on the field? And everybody sort of collects their thoughts or are the people that you're talking with within the industry just in pure survival mode right now? Yeah, the no doubt. Folks are in survival mode. And even, you know, the um, now that there are some within the industry that are doing quite well. And again, it's, it's state by state as to whether or not uh, garden centers have been deemed essential, whether florists have been deemed essential, whether they're still open. But uh, some of the growers that I talk with that actually sell to the box stores, some of them have had triple digit, I mean, not triple, double digit year over year comps um, in sales during this spring, right? So that's, if, if the box store is the only one open 
and that's the only place that people can get plants and the people that want plants um that's those that's you know obviously those particular companies uh, are doing well now you mentioned those percentages earlier and i want to go back to that for just a second if i say 25% that that 20 what's significant about 25% that's the number of households that have ever purchased a landscape service in their in their in their lives and it's roughly 52 percent, roughly half of the consumers have ever purchased chlorophyll in any form, whether it be a cut flower, whether it be uh, a plant. So that's, there's a lot of upside potential. And that upside potential is, has not been tapped into because of all the reasons that we've been talking about. So is there an opportunity? You better know it. It's just it's going to require us not to cut back on marketing because marketing is a, is a less essential cost to our business and we're trying to trim all the costs that we can. We should view it as a, as a strategic CapEx investment in our business and market our collective heads off. Now's the time to shout it from the mountaintop and to market, market, market. So this is when few other people are marketing so in the midst of all the quiet, then you can really make a big splash. Do you feel as if, because I think anyone that's in the plants, Charlie, I'll use a technical term here, gets a little woo-woo occasionally. You know, we all get a little woo-woo about a new plant or something like that. How much <laughs> of where the, the green industry is at, I think we could say this with floriculture, we could see this, say this with the nursery trade. Do you move into trying to contrast and compare newer varieties, new introductions versus some of these products that are more commoditized? From an economist perspective, is there any validity to that argument that there are some products within the industry that we just need to accept? They're going to be a commodity. That's just the way they exist. And that these things that maybe people don't have as much perceived value familiarity with that those are the things that we need to put some of these marketing and branding efforts into. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly where we find ourselves. Now we only have ourselves to blame for commoditizing some of those pr products you're referring to. Uh, but there, there we are. All right. We're in that situation. They are deemed as commodities. So don't necessarily try to, uh, you, you make a reasonable margin, a mid, um, at least a minimally acceptable margin on those materials, and then you know focus your marketing efforts and your branding on those uh, new and exciting things, which should bring other benefits than the fact that they just bloom all summer, or they they have more blooms, or they are drought tolerant, and so forth. Those are important features of those plants. But that's not really what sales and what people are willing to pay for. When, they, when people buy a plant, you got to ask yourself, what job are they needing to be filled when they buy that plant? And that was a, a term that Clay Christensen, who is a Harvard business professor, he recently passed away. And he, was, he talked about disruptive innovations. And he, he talked about this jobs to be filled phenomena. So I, I, I thought about that and I thought, asked myself, when people buy plants for a landscape, when they buy flowers for their home, what need is it? What job is it that they're looking to feel? And then, then you get to the essence of why they're buying, right? So it's, 
yes, we should uh, sort of brand because uh, Dr. Bridget B. here at Michigan State and Dr. Mar- Marco Palma, who's a colleague of mine here at Texas A&M, several years ago, we did a, a branding study with some cooperating garden centers. And on branded product, we actually raised the price and lowered the price because we were getting trying to get a feel for the elasticity of demand. And sure enough, we found that we could raise the price and the number of units that people purchased actually kept increasing. So we're, we've been leaving money on the table in terms of that elasticity of demand. Now, that was on branded product. So I do think we should market, we should brand the new and exciting, but we got to be very laser focused on what it is that we're talking. Why is this new? Why is this exciting? And talk about the benefits in addition to the features of the plant. You mentioned something just now that has struck me several times in this conversation, because of course, a lot of people ask this question, Charlie, as if anyone has a crystal ball, especially in a circumstance like this, that what's next? Uh, What do we do? And something that I've always tried to share with people is you have to come to an understanding that the consumer that we all share is a consumer with disposable income. These plants, be it floriculture, be it horticulture, they're not necessity for people. Do you feel as if that is something when we talk about these price increases, like what you're talking about in those branded product examples, that the consumer that we all sort of are going after, they do have disposable income. And that 20% increase on that product isn't going to be the determining factor in their purchase decision sometimes. Yeah, for the for our target consumer, which is really the one that's between 45 and 65 years of age, that's that certainly holds true. Now, there is that entry-level consumer, so we, we need to keep in mind that we can't simply raise the price on every single thing in, that we're offering through the garden center or the floors. We can't just raise everything by 25% because we, we have to bear in mind that there's still that entry-level consumer that we need to keep interested or at least get interested in our industry. And it's that, that millennial that's, uh, you know, millennials are now uh, 25 to 39 years of age. They're not that 18-year-old anymore. That's Gen Z. That's, that's the next generation after millennials. But the oldest millennials are in their home buying years, their gardening years, their landscaping years, their flower buying years. And so we, we need to also remember them as an entry-level consumer that we can't outprice their their means and and ironically those are the ones that focus in on a lot of the environmental benefits and health and well-being benefits and uh, so i'm i'm very optimistic about our ability to convince millennials and and subsequent generations on our uh, benefits but we're going to, have to start telling them more aggressively why, when I get a, a look at the market space right now, I've asked this question to a few people. I've had Alan Armitage, I've asked this question of. I've had a whole bunch of people, Charlie, so I'm asking you too. Why is it that the industry, who is the person that we got to where it became maybe a tad too practical at times? 
that low maintenance became a sales mantra. And by doing that in the green industry, we also stripped away, again, not to go too, too woo-woo, honest Charlie, but we did strip away a little bit of the whimsical nature. You know, we didn't talk to people about gardening and flowers. We talked to them about this very practical boxwood. Where did that (laughs) start? And when you look at it in what we're talking about from a brand perspective, you know, it's really hard from my own background being in strategic branding. It's very hard to brand that, that, you know, practicality gets a little tough at times. And where do you think that started? I, I think we could probably all agree and say it was a mistake. How did we get there? Well, the the if you want to look way back at the the really what's underlying it is whenever you in the sixties, late sixties and early seventies, when you saw the spouse in the home enter the workplace and time became more limited. So as as that exacerbated, and of course Americans work more hours per week than most other countries in the world. And so as the hours per week increased and you had both the both uh, the father and the mother serving as breadwinners, then there was less time. And so we saw in many market research reports that when we asked people, why don't you do more gardening, why more landscaping, why don't you buy more plants? They were always just a fear of failure. That was the number one answer. Right, so they didn't see the garden performance that they expected. In other words, the plants died. Number two, I don't have enough time. Right, and and so we never really heard. I don't have the money to, but it was always garden performance and lack of time. So I think the industry heard that from from our market research reports, and they responded and say, hey, this is a very low maintenance plant. And and so I think to some degree, consumers have a, a warped expectation on what it takes to garden, what it takes to landscape, what it takes to decorate the interior of our homes with potted plants and cut flowers. I think they have an unrealistic expectation over the amount of effort. And we shouldn't shy away. You know, now, now in hindsight, we know we should not have shied away from talking about that because of the the volume of research that shows that gardening helps reduce obesity, not just uh, for adults, but even kids that have school gardens. Childhood real obesity is reduced. The incidence of bullying is reduced in the school. Uh, their uh, performance on standardized tests is improved. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could have been talking about besides the fact that this sucker doesn't need any watering or, or uh, uh, fertilization or pruning or whatever low maintenance thing that we were emphasizing. It, it almost feels like we participated in the commoditization of them. You know, it, it feels like I would go into independent garden center clients of ours and I would say to them, do you know, sometimes you guys are leading talking about the death of the plant. When you start talking about like, oh, it's hard to kill. Don't worry about it. Do you know how crazy this sounds to me? It's like selling it's like selling a pair of Yeezys to somebody and talking about how if they get a stain on them, it's easy to clean them. It, it just mm-hmm. it, it felt so counterintuitive 
to all of the benefits of it that it felt like we were selling out of a hole a lot of times when I would see them interact with consumers. Do you think, um, I do look at this and say, what we have seen in social media, a lot of the small scale flower producers in the country that I mentioned, um, myself included, right? Like we have a pretty sizable social media influence and upward that the flower and gardening and having it be the, you know, there, there's some kind of pun here, Charlie, that we could come up with, with it being the attractor, the pollinator for consumers to get their attention at least, is something that is viable moving forward. Just that moving it away from this practicality a little bit and not talking about a rose in the traditional knockout rose, easier to take care of, but leaning into that flower a little bit more that there's beautiful varieties of roses out there that are fragrant, that are awesome, and they are easier to take care of if we want to go there, heaven forbid, than your grandmother's rose was. Do you think there's something there in the flower itself as a branding attractant moving forward that maybe we haven't leveraged the way we could have? Yes, Steve. There, uh, obviously, there are branding opportunities that go along with that, but that's still talking about the features. And I'm, I'm reticent to focus too much attention on the features. Instead, I'd rather focus on the fact that that dozen roses um, is in the same room as, uh, like, my, my father passed away from dementia three years ago. And, and uh, whenever he was around plants, you know, his behavior was markedly different. Because remember, I grew up in a nursery business, and if we just get dad outside, just potting up a plant, all of a sudden, he, he, the, the anger and the, the belligerence and so forth, that just disappeared. He was like the dad of old. When his hands were in the dirt and potting up a plant, whatever, he's joking around, is the dad I remembered. But the, the moment that we left that atmosphere and he got back to his, his bedroom, you know, the same belligerent, angry personality came back and I didn't recognize him anymore. So uh, that's, that's the part that really captures people. Cause look at how many people go through Alzheimer's. So they have a family member, or a loved one that's going through dementia, Alzheimer's and the fact that flowers in their rooms can, can enhance their memory capacity. It can enhance their attitudes, their behaviors to me, Steve, that's the stuff that we need to talk about because that's those are societal issues and that that's well-being and and the one thing i know for sure is that people are willing to pay for well-being and and the things that enhance their health and their lives so i i hear you in terms of the plants and and that's you know we we as a as an industry are stellar at coming up with new plants, both cut flowers, uh, the bedding plants. I mean, look at uh, spring trials, which was canceled this year, of course. But look at how many new varieties that we develop, and some of them are outstanding. And we have new features of these plants that are exciting. Okay, let's talk about that, but let's not negate the the fact that a kid with ADHD in the midst of these flowers um, for twenty minutes it has the same effect neurologically as two of their medications, right? So 
that that's this is powerful stuff, and those that's the things we should be emphasizing. How do you? Because I, I completely agree with you, and I think it's getting to the same ends through you know pretty comparable means. We a lot of us know this, right? We we know this, and even in a time like now, people are aware that gardening and the as we get you know it, it does get close to the woo woo conversation that all of this has so much personal well-being in it for the people that participate in gardening, in growing things, that at that point of purchase, that is such a difficult thing to communicate to the uninitiated, that how do we bridge that gap? Is it the social media storytelling that I mentioned earlier that we've seen maybe small-scale people sometimes do better than large-scale? Are... Is it that kind of thing, Charlie, like you mentioned? Is it D, all of the above, to get people who aren't aware of some of these things that we're talking about that same way? Yeah, I think it is all of the above. But one thing we know about particularly younger consumers is that when they go into a shopping environment in which they are unsure of themselves and they have a lack of knowledge, they will introduce – I mean, not introduce they – will, they will investigate ad nauseum before they even step foot to a florist, before they even step foot into the garden center, because they don't want to appear unintelligent when they get in there. So, so here's an opportunity to capture that, that need that they have to be educated before they buy and, and to supply all information in mobile format and social media and uh, websites and so forth to help make it easier for them to understand what's going to be required and, of course, the features and the benefits. Let's switch over to the COVID talk here um, because I think clearly this is a, a toughie for all of us individually. You know, as you even mentioned, state by state is clearly such different pressures are being mm-hmm. faced with, you know, New York state, some of in, in reality for the green industry, uh, the Northeast is a, a major, major. I mean, it's the major player uh, when it comes to the garden center fronts in the country still. When we look at this, what are you seeing on like the grower side, first we'll address like floriculture, maybe as far as grower side of it. Do you think we're going to see a sizable percentage of larger scale flower, cut flower growers in this country be able to even make it through this period? I think we're going to see some shakeout. I mean, if you look at the number of growers that have exited the industry since the Great Recession, we have 16% fewer growers today than what we did in 2007. And if you look at the number of florists, you know, they since 2001, they've declined by 42%. And uh, retail, we're still we're down 3% in terms of the number of retailers. Now, landscaping is the only, only sector that really has seen an increase, and we have 12% more landscapers, but that's an easy entry, easy exit profession, right? If I have a truck and mowing equipment and so forth, I can enter the landscape, landscape maintenance business. But uh, uh, so is, will there be 
a shakeout that results from COVID-19? No doubt about it. No doubt. And we've seen 6.6 million unemployment claims in the last two weeks, right? The, the unemployment claims just came out today. Had 3 million last week, 3.3 million this week. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in unprecedented, uncharted territory in terms of the number of people being unemployed. The unemployment could reach as much as 30%, it's projected. But we just don't know. That's a, there's a great deal of uncertainty right now in terms of how soon are we going to get in, in the, our arms around this COVID-19. You tell me that, then I'll be able to tell you more about how the economy is going to respond. But there's just a great deal of uncertainty. But I do know this. You can't have that level of unemployment without having major impacts. And you can't have these major impacts without suffering the loss of businesses. When you would normally look at this as an economist, and I'll, I'll ask you to sort of give us a little bit of if there's any historical precedent here at all that you're aware of. What we do, we know this part of it. There will be a percentage of the supply chain that drops away based upon what we're talking about with some growers not being able to continue in business. On the other end of that, is consumer demand and what there, you, there would be an assumed, I guess, Charlie, that there would be a percentage of consumer demand that would also drop. Is there any way to look at it to, to even give a historical framework for it to be able to look and say, well, what is the consumer demand drop? Is it astronomical? Is it 16%, but yet maybe the grower chain drops 25%. How do economists historically look at this kind of thing and trying to forecast where consumer demand is at after black swan events like this? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, we can look historically. Uh, some of the GDP data that I sort through uh, one category is for flowers, seeds, and potted plants. Now you say, where's the shrubs and trees? Well, those are embedded in the private domestic investment numbers within GDP, so I can't sort those out. But for flowers, seeds, and potted plants, if you look historically, since the even the, the, the 50s, since World War II ended, um, whenever we had a recession, we didn't really see that much of a dip in terms of the consumption, the personal consumption expenditure numbers, we didn't see that much of a dip unless the recession lasted two years or more. And then uh, we saw just a minor dip in demand. And then the subsequent year, it, a big spike. All right. So we, and I always refer to that as we were recession resistant, we weren't recession proof. I didn't know how recession-proof we were until the, the Great Recession, where for the first time, sales went plummeting during the recession. And if you look at um, the consumption of flower seeds and potted plants after that, it took us until 2016 to get back to where we were prior to the Great Recession in terms of the consumption of flower seeds and potted plants. And of course, since then, we've been above 
where we were back in 2007, uh, 2007. So it took us a long time to recover uh, in terms of that consumer demand for flower seeds and potted plants. If we make the same conjecture that COVID-19 impacts are going to be every bit as deep as uh, the, the Great Recession, then we can expect a lower than normal consumer demand for five or six years at least. And then we'll, we'll pick back up after that. However, if we can get on top of COVID-19, somebody develops a vaccine, and we get back to some normality of life by the end of summer, it'll be more of a V-shaped recovery where it's not as long and drawn out because there's, there's V-shaped recoveries from recessions. There's U-shaped where you find the bottom and you hit the bottom for a while and then you come back up. And then there's hockey stick, like what we saw during the Great Recession, where you fall and then the recovery is a very slow, protracted recovery, like a, a shape like a hockey stick. I, again, I can't tell you the shape until we get a little more data about COVID-19. And uh, we already know it's severe. We've lost more lives than what we lost in 9-11. So it's, 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 it's going to have a big impact. We just don't know the shape of that recovery curve. But again, if, if history is, is um, any indication, then the most recent history tells us that it's going to be a few years before our demand gets back up to where it was. Now, having said that, I go back to my anecdotal information earlier where some growers selling to the box store side are double digit uh, are experiencing double digit comps year over year. So they're they're double digit over what they were last year at this time. Do you feel but do you, it's a little different ball game? Do you feel as if the grower or the retailer, and we'll stay with the IGC as the retailer, because I want to break out the big box store separately here in a second. Do you fe- who do you think is in a more fragile space overall? I know as a grower, it would be the real challenge here is you just can't turn the tap off. You just can't be like, hey, we're going to buckle down on efficiency. We're going to run with lower staff because you just can't. Sometimes you can mm-hmm. run real efficient ships, but then we also have the retailer that may literally see zero and they don't, and maybe the way they run their business is through their own private equity. They don't run on operational loans. You know, we get into sort of the, the financing side of it. Is there one side of the equation that you think is in a more fragile position given the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, historically, it's always been those firms that are upstream from the point of contact with the consumer. In other words, the retailer has always had less risk involved than the distributors uh, or on the landscape side, the, the landscape service providers that or the excuse me, the wholesalers and or growers. Uh, allied trade providers, all those firms that are upstream have greater risk at, that are at stake. And a good illustration of that is, you know, back in 2007 in the Southeast, when we had that major drought, you saw there were still uh, growers and everybody else, landscape service providers and 
the Allied trade was still selling fertilizers and so forth. Scots was still selling fertilizers until the governor of Georgia declared a water moratorium and said you couldn't water any any landscapes. You couldn't use water for landscape for irrigating landscaping. So then Pike's Nursery, which had I think twenty three retail outlets around the Atlanta metro area, they go bankrupt. And then the chips start falling on back in the supply chain. When it's all said and done, 31,000 green industry jobs were lost. And, and I don't remember the exact percentage of, of growers that, that were forced out, but you had bankruptcies all upstream from that, that failing at the retail level. And it was all because we didn't have water. So this is a very synonymous kind of event. All right. So if, if garden centers aren't able to be um, open because they're they're not deemed to be essential, then uh, th- therein lies the same issue. Then the chips will start falling on upstream. Let's look at the the big box component of this. Um, do you see their role? And I'm just speaking to a grower here perspective, folks. If you're an IGC owner out there and you listen, forgive me. OK. That the big box stores might have the kind of output even after an event like this, more so than the IGC, sort of the the reliable mass market retailer where growers that, who work with them, maybe that would be a more consistent output after something like this? Well, it's it's more consistent from a traffic count standpoint. I mean, you've got people that are coming into those outlets or more usually they're there for more than one purpose, not just to buy plants or, or landscaping supplies or what have you. They're there to buy, you know, light bulbs or some other home improvement type of purchase. So it, it's the, in fact, a lot of people coming in for all those other purchases end up buying plants as a, as a spontaneous purchase rather than a planned purchase. So just from a, foot traffic standpoint, the more people you have going through your store, the more likely that you're going to be selling them some sort of plant or, or related supplies. So if, if a garden center from the IGC standpoint, you know, they've got to get people there specifically for the plants and the supplies and they don't have, you know, all the other plumbing and electrical and all of the other stuff to draw people through their store. So it's it's and there's several ways in which successful garden centers have have been able to get around that in terms of being destination garden centers, uh, offering cafes, restaurants, um, other types of merchandise that's that's pseudo outdoor related, maybe not clothing, uh, outdoor furniture, other lines to try to get people to go through their doors. As we wrap up here, Charlie, I'm going to ask you a big question here at the end. And I know this has been a sensitive topic throughout both sides of it. Floriculture, horticulture, the green industry at large has had a challenge with this question. Does this point to an element in the industry that maybe growers should have been trying to build a business strategy to sell more so directly to consumers than some of the reliance that has existed on a lot of brokered sales traditionally over the years in the grain industry? 
Well, that's a good question. And I, I don't think that's the case because that requires a completely different set of skills, talents, and abilities and uh, a different set of competitive advantages. Now, you are seeing growers today go down that path and they're starting to sell directly to the end consumer. But as soon as you take on the mantra or the, the, the shield uh, of, of being a retailer, in addition to being a grower, you have exponentially made your business more complex. And so it's been challenging enough to make sure that not only do you grow good plants, but you have a sales force in place that can help sell those plants, that you have uh, your marketing in place. And then if you start adding retail dimensions on top of that, that adds a great deal of complexity to your business. And there have been a number of businesses that have tried and tried to roll that up that have failed because of diseconomies of scale and or diseconomies of scope. That is, uh, we, we have a concept called bounded rationality in economics, and that we as humans, we have finite minds, and that as managers, we can only focus on so many things at one point in time. So it's almost like we have to create these entities with separate divisions. Now, there are companies who do this successfully in our industry already. There are growers, they have a landscape division, they have a retail division, but usually that's a case where it's a family operation and one brother or sister was heading this division, another brother or sister is heading that division. And, and so then they, they collaboratively have this, this horizontally integrated firm that's also vertically integrated through the channel. So there are examples but they're fewer, that they're not the norm, they're the exception to the rule. So I guess what I'm saying is that in the wake of an event like this, Black Swan event, you're going to continue to see metamorphosis in the supply chain, and there will be those who will either attempt to vertically integrate backwards or forwards in the supply chain in an attempt to mitigate risk. And so it, it, it will be very interesting to see how all of this plays out. So that's where the opportunities lie within the industry. While these events cause great heartache and they cause great shakeout, in the wake of them, there's always tremendous opportunity. So that's what I'm also encouraging folks to, to be mindful about as they go forward of those opportunities and where they may capture those opportunities the future in the green industry. You know, Charlie, I think we're both going to have to agree here that we're just going to have to come back and do another podcast in like 45 <laughs> days or so, because clearly this is a, an incredibly fluid situation. I think as, it is. I think as difficult it is for people sometimes to recognize what you just said, I think is really paramount here, that there will be opportunity that shows up during this period. And hopefully we can maybe add a little bit of insight to the conversation for everyone. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's very fluid and it's changing every day. And even the webinars that I did uh, at the end of last week were a little different than the webinars I gave at the first part of last week. It's changing that rapid.
I walk the cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way for you 